Welcome to a special edition of the Jay Sheldon Show. I know our brand new schedule is Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, but we felt like doing something special tonight, so we're going to do something special. Why not? It is a classic book only night. We got not, we're not going to get into politics. We're going to talk about some issue of the day, some transgender crap, which is about all that anybody's talking about these days. We're just going to put all that aside because it's the weekend and I don't give a crap. We had a great weekend so far. It's halfway over for us here uh, in Malaysia. And uh, yeah, things are going well. And we have, uh, you know what? We spent our fabulous Saturday night doing laundry. Yay. That was fun. (laughs) Oh, man. Anyway, uh, we are uh, we're reading White Fang which is a classic, classic, written by Jack London, first published back in 1906. And uh, no Miko updates, no nothing tonight. We're just going to get right into the book. We're going to get through a chapter or so, and we'll move ahead. And as a reminder, one of our uh, favorite uh, viewers, listeners, uh, suggested that because of the tone of most of the show on our regular editions, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we talk about politics. We have a very conservative viewpoint and uh, they suggested maybe we should be reading something other than children's classic books, maybe 1984 by George Orwell. And so we're going to do that. As soon as we get done with The White Fang, we'll be doing 1984 by George Orwell. That will be coming up. So excited about that. Looking forward to it. And uh, we'll get through it one way or the other. So right now, we're going to just punch right in and move ahead. I don't know how long we'll do tonight. We'll read until I'm tired of reading, and then we'll uh, and then we'll move forward. Why not? <laughs> it is White Fang. It was written by Jack London and first published back in 1906. We have gotten all the way up to Chapter 5, where White Fang has managed to defeat... Uh, having been put to the challenge, has managed to defeat uh, all kinds of every sort of dog they've put in front of him, and a couple of wolves too. Sadly, this rather unusual uh, bulldog suddenly appeared, and that might be a bit more of a challenge than White Fang expected. So let's move on. Chapter 4. The Clinging Death Beauty Smith slipped the chain from his neck and stepped back. For once, White Fang didn't make an immediate attack. He stood still, ears pricked forward, alert, curious, surveying the strange animal that faced him. He'd never seen such a dog before. Tim Keenan shoved the bulldog forward with a muttered, Go to it. The animal waddled towards the center of the circle, short, squat, ungainly. He came to a stop and blinked across at White Fang. There were cries from the crowd of, Go to him, Cherokee! Sick him, Cherokee! Eat him up! But Cherokee didn't really seem anxious to fight. He turned his head, blinked at the men who shouted, at the same time wagged his tump of a stale, a tump of a stale in a good-naturedly way. He wasn't afraid, but lazy. 
Besides, it didn't seem to him that it was intended he should fight with the dog he saw before him. He wasn't used to fighting with that kind of dog. He was waiting for them to bring the real dog. Tim Keenan stepped in and bent over Cherokee, fondling him on both sides of the shoulders with hands that rubbed against the grain of the hair that made slight pushing forward movements. There were so many suggestions. Also, their effect was irritating, for Cherokee began to growl very softly, deep down in his throat. There was a correspondence and rhythm between the growls and the movements of the man's hands. The growls rose in the throat with the culmination of each forward-pushing movement and ebbed down to start up afresh with the beginning of the next movement. The end of each movement was the ascent of the rhythm. The movement ended abruptly, and the growling rising with a jerk. Now this wasn't without effect on White Fang. The hair began to rise on the back of his neck and across his shoulders. Tim Keenan gave a final shove forward and stepped back again. As the impetus that carried Cherokee forward died down, he continued to go forward of his own volition in a swift, bow-legged run. And then White Fang struck. A cry of startled admiration went up. He'd covered the distance and gone in more like a cat than a dog. With the same cat-like swiftness, he'd slashed with his fangs and leaped clear. The bulldog was bleeding back of one ear from a rip in his thick neck. He gave no sign, didn't even snarl turned and followed after White Fang. The display on both sides, the quickness of the one and the steadiness of the other, had excited the partisan spirit of the crowd. And the men were making new bets and increasingly original bets. Again and yet again, White Fang sprang in, slashed, got away untouched, and still his strange foe followed after him. Without too great haste, not slowly, but deliberately, determinedly, in a businesslike sort of way. Now there was purpose in his method, something for him to do that he was intent upon doing, and from which nothing could distract him. His whole demeanor, every action, was stamped with this purpose. It puzzled White Fang. Never had he seen such a dog. It had no hair protection. It was soft, and it bled easily. There was no thick mat of fur to baffle White Fang's teeth, as they were often baffled by dogs of his own breed. Each time that his teeth struck, they sank easily into the yielding flesh, while the animal didn't seem to defend itself. Another disconcerting thing was that it made no outcry such as he had been accustomed to with the other dogs he'd fought. Beyond a growl or a grunt, the dog took its punishment silently. Never did it flag in its pursuit of him. Not the Cherokee was slow. He could turn and whirl swiftly enough. But White Fang was never there. Cherokee was puzzled, too. 
He'd never fought before with a dog with which he could not close. The desire to close had always been mutual, but here was a dog that kept a distance, dancing, dodging here and there all about. And when it did get its teeth into him, it didn't hold on, but it let go instantly, darted away. But White Fang could not get at the soft underside of the throat. The bulldog stood too short while its massive jaws were added protection. White Fang darted in and out, unscathed, while Cherokee's wounds increased. Both sides of his neck and head were ripped and slashed. He bled freely, but showed no signs of being disconcerted. He continued his plodding pursuit, though once, for the moment, baffled, he came to a full stop, blinked at the men who looked on, at the same time wagged his stump of a tail as an expression of his willingness to fight. At that moment, White Fang was in upon him and out in passing ripped his trimmed remnant of an ear. With a slight manifestation of anger, Cherokee took up the pursuit again, running on the inside of the circle White Fang was making, and striving to fasten his deadly grip on White Fang's throat. The bulldog missed by a hair's breadth, and cries of praise went up as White Fang doubled suddenly out of danger in the opposite direction. The time went by, White Fang still danced on, dodging, doubling, leaping in and out, ever inflicting damage. And still, the bulldog, with grim certitude, toiled after him. Sooner or later, he would accomplish his purpose, get the grip on that would win the battle. In the meantime, he accepted all the punishment the other could deal him. His tufts of ears had become tassels, neck and shoulders were slashed in a score of places. His very lips were cut, bleeding. All from these lightning snaps that were beyond his foreseeing and guarding. Well, time and again, White Fang had attempted to knock Cherokee off his feet. But the difference in their height was too great. Cherokee was too squat, too close to the ground. White Fang tried the trick once too often. The chance came in one of his quick doublings and counter-circlings. He caught Cherokee with head turned away as he whirled more slowly. His shoulder was exposed. White Fang drove in upon it, but his own shoulder was high above. And while he struck with such force, his momentum carried him on across over the other's body. For the first time in his fighting history, men saw White Fang lose his footing. His body turned a half-somersault in the air, and he would have landed on his back had he not twisted cat-like still in the air in the effort to bring his feet to the ground. As it was, he struck heavily on his side, and the next instant he was on his feet. But in that instant, Cherokee's teeth closed on his throat. It wasn't a good grip, being too low down toward the chest, but Cherokee held on. White Fang sprang to his feet, 
tore wildly around, trying to shake off the bulldog's body. It made him frantic, this clinging, dragging weight. Bound his movements, restricted his freedom. It was like the trap, and all his instincts resented it, revolted against it. It was a mad revolt. For several minutes, he was, to all intents, insane. The basic life that was in him took charge of him. The will to exist of his body surged over him. He was dominated by this mere flesh love of life. All intelligence was gone. It was as though he had no brain. His reason was unseated by the blind yearning of the flesh to exist and move at all hazards to move and continue to move, for movement was the expression of its existence. Round and round he went, whirling, turning, reversing, trying everything to shake off the fifty-pound weight that dragged at his throat. The bulldog did little but keep his grip. Sometimes, rarely, he managed to get his feet to the ground and for a moment to brace himself against White Fang. But the next moment, his footing would be lost and he'd be dragging around in the whirl of one of White Fang's mad gyrations. Cherokee identified himself with his instinct. He knew he was doing the right thing by holding on and there came to him certain blissful thrills of satisfaction. At such moments, he even closed his eyes and allowed his body to be hurled hither and thither, willy-nilly, careless of any hurt that might thereby come to it. Oh, that didn't count. The grip was the thing, and the grip he kept. White Fang ceased only when he had tired himself out. He could do nothing and he could not understand. Never in all his fighting had this thing ever happened. The dogs he'd fought didn't fight that way. With them it was a snap and a slash, get away, snap and slash, and get away. He lay partly on his side, panting for breath. Cherokee, still holding his grip, urged against him, trying to get him over entirely on his side. White Fang resisted. He could feel the jaws shifting their grip, slightly relaxing and coming together again in a chewing movement. Each shift brought the grip closer to his throat. The bulldog's method was to hold what he had, and when opportunity favored, to work in for more. Opportunity favored when White Fang remained quiet. When White Fang struggled, Cherokee was content to merely hold on. The bulging back of Cherokee's neck was the only portion of his body that White Fang's teeth could reach. He got hold towards the base, where the neck comes out from the shoulders. But he didn't know the chewing method of fighting, nor were his jaws adapted to it. He spasmodically ripped and tore with his fangs for a space. And then a change in their position diverted him. The bulldog had managed to roll him over on his back and still hanging on to his throat was on top of him. Like a cat 
White Fang bowed his hindquarters in, and with the feet digging into his enemy's abdomen above him, he began to claw with long, tearing strokes. Cherokee might well have been disemboweled had he not quickly pivoted on his grip and got his body off White Fang's at the right angle to it. There was no escaping that grip. It was like fate itself, and as inexorably. Slowly it shifted up along the jugular. All that saved White Fang was, uh, from death was the loose skin of his neck and the thick fur that covered it. This served to form a large roll in Cherokee's mouth, the fur of which well-nigh defied his teeth. But bit by bit, whenever the chance offered, he was getting more and more of the loose skin and fur in his mouth. The result was that he was slowly throttling White Fang. The latter's breath was drawn with greater and greater difficulty as the moments went by. It began to look as though the battle were over. The backers of Cherokee waxed jubilant, offered ridiculous odds. White Fang's backers were correspondingly depressed and refused bets of ten to one, twenty to one, though one man was rash enough to close a wager of fifty to one. This man was Beauty Smith. He took a step into the ring and pointed his finger at White Fang. And then he began to laugh derisively, scornfully. This produced the desired effect. White Fang went wild with rage. He called up his reserves of strength and gained his feet. As he struggled around the ring, the fifty pounds of his foe ever dragging on his throat, his Anger pressed on into panic. The basic life of him dominated him again, and his intelligence fled before the will of his flesh to live, round and round and back again, stumbling, falling, rising, even uprearing at times on his hind legs and lifting his foe clear off the earth. He struggled vainly to shake off the clinging death. At last he fell, toppled backwards, exhausted. The bulldog promptly shifted his grip, getting in closer, mangling more and more of the fur-folded flesh, throttling White Fang more severely than ever. Shouts of applause went up for the victor, many cries of, Cherokee! Cherokee! And to this, Cherokee responded by vigorously wagging his stump of a tail. But the clamor of approval didn't distract him. There was no sympathetic relation between his tail and his massive jaws. The one might wag, but the others held their terrible grip on White Fang's throat. It was at this time that a diversion came to the spectators. There was a jingle of bells. Dog-musher cries were heard. Everybody, save Beauty Smith, looked apprehensively, the fear of the police strong upon them. But they saw, up the trail and not down, two men riding with sled and dogs. 
They were evidently coming down the creek from some prospecting trip. At the sight of the crowds, they stopped to see the cause of the excitement. The dog musher wore a mustache, but the other, taller, younger man, smooth-shaven, his skin rosy from the pounding of his blood and the running in the frosty air. White Fang had practically ceased struggling. Now and again he resisted spasmodically and to no purpose. He could get little air, and that little grew less and less under the merciless grip that ever tightened. In spite of his armor of fur, the great vein in his throat would have long since been torn open had not the first grip of the bulldog been so low down as to practically be on his chest. It had taken Cherokee a long time to shift that grip upward, and this had also tended further to clog his jaws with fur and skin fold. In the meantime, the abysmal brute in Beauty Smith had been rising into his brain and mastering the small bit of sanity that he possessed at best. When he saw White Fang's eyes beginning to glaze, he knew beyond doubt the fight was lost. Then he broke loose. He sprang upon White Fang and began savagely to kick him. There were hisses from the crowd, cries of protest, but that was all. While this went on, and Beauty Smith continued to kick White Fang, there was a commotion in the crowd. The tall young newcomer was forcing his way through, shouldering men right and left without ceremony or gentleness. And when he broke through into the ring, Beauty Smith was just in the act of delivering another kick. All his weight was on one foot, and he was in a state of unstable equilibrium. At that moment, the newcomer's fist landed with a smashing blow right in his face. Beauty Smith's remaining leg left on the ground, and his whole body seemed to lift up in the air as he turned over backward and struck the snow. The newcomer turned upon the crowd. You cowards, he cried. You beasts! He was in a rage himself, a sane rage. His gray eyes seemed metallic, steel-like as they flashed upon the crowd. Beauty Smith regained his feet and came toward him, sniffling and cowardly. The newcomer didn't understand. He didn't know how abject a coward the other was. And though he was coming back intent on fighting, so with a you Beast, he smashed Beauty Smith over backwards with a second blow in the face. Beauty Smith decided the snow was the safest place for him and lay where he'd fallen, making no effort to get up. Come on, Matt, lend a hand, the newcomer called the dog musher who'd followed him into the ring. Both men bent over the dogs. Matt took hold of White Fang, ready to pull when Cherokee's jaws should be loosened. This the younger man endeavored to accomplish by clutching the bulldog's jaws in his hands and trying to spread them. It was a vain undertaking. 
As he pulled and tugged and wrenched, he kept exclaiming with every expulsion of breath, Beasts! The crowd began to grow unruly. Some of the men were protesting against the spoiling of the sport, but they were silenced when the newcomer lifted his head from his work for a moment and glared at them. You damn beasts, he finally exploded and went back to his task. No use, Mr. Scott, you can't break him apart that way, Matt said at last. The pair paused and surveyed the locked dogs. Ain't bleeding much, Matt announced. Ain't got all the way in yet. But he's liable to any moment, Scott answered. There, do you see that? He shifted his grip a bit. The younger man's excitement and apprehension for White Fang was growing. He struck Cherokee about the head savagely again and again. But that didn't loosen the jaws. Cherokee wagged his tump of a stale, uh, tail in advertisement that he understood the meaning of the blows, but that he knew he was himself in the right and only doing his duty by keeping his grip. Won't some of you help? Scott cried desperately at the crowd. But no help was offered. Instead, the crowd began sarcastically to cheer him on, showered him with fastidious advice. You'll have to get a pry, Matt counseled. The other reached into the holster at his hip and drew his revolver, tried to thrust its muzzle between the bulldog's jaws. He shoved, shoved hard till the grating of the steel against the locked teeth could be distinctly heard. Both men were on their knees, bending over the dogs. Tim Keenan strode into the ring. He paused beside Scott, touched him on the shoulder, saying ominously, Don't break them teeth, stranger. Then I'll break his neck, Scott retorted, continuing shoving and wedging with the revolver muzzle. I said, don't break them teeth, the pharaoh dealer repeated more ominously than before. But if it was a bluff, he intended, it didn't work. Scott never desisted from his efforts, though he looked up coolly and asked, Your dog? The pharaoh dealer grunted. Then get in here and break his grip. Well, stranger, the other drawled irritatingly, I don't mind telling you there's something I ain't worked out for myself. I don't know how to turn the trick. Then get out of the way, was the reply, and don't bother me, I'm busy. Tim Keenan continued standing over him, but Scott took no further notice of his presence. He'd managed to get the muzzle in between the jaws on one side. He was trying to get it out between the jaws on the other side. Now, this accomplished, he pried gently, carefully, loosened the jaws a bit at time. Matt, a bit at a time, extricated White Fang's mangled neck. Stand by to receive your dog was Scott's preemptory order to Cherokee's owner. The pharaoh dealer stooped down obediently and got a firm hold on Cherokee. Now, Scott warned, giving the final pry. The dogs were drawn apart. The bulldog 
struggling vigorously. Take him away, Scott commanded, and Tim Keenan dragged Cherokee back into the crowd. White Fang made several ineffectual efforts to get up. Once he gained his feet, but his legs were too weak to sustain him, and he slowly wilted and sank back into the snow. His eyes were half-closed, and the surface of them were glassy. His jaws were apart, and through them the tongue protruded, daggled and limp. To all appearances, he looked like a dog that had been strangled to death. Matt examined him. Just about all in, he announced, but he's breathing all right. Beauty Smith had regained his feet and come over to look at White Fang. Matt, how much is a good sled dog worth? Scott asked. The dog musher, still on his knees, stooped over White Fang, calculated for a moment. Three hundred dollars, he answered. And how much for one that's all chewed up like this one? Scott asked, nudged White Fang with his foot. Half that, said the dog musher's judgment. Scott turned to Beauty Smith. Do you hear, Mr. Beast? I'm going to take your dog from you, and I'm going to give you 150 for him. He opened his pocketbook and counted out the bills. Beauty Smith put his hands behind his back, refusing to touch the proffered money. I ain't a selling, he said. Oh, yes, you are, the other assured him, because I'm buying. Here's your money. The dog's mine. Beauty Smith, his hands still behind his back, began to back away. Scott sprang towards him, drawing his fist back to strike. Beauty Smith cowered down in anticipation of the blow. I got my rights, he whimpered. You forfeited your rights to own that dog, was the rejoinder. Are you going to take my money, or do I have to hit you again? All right, Beauty Smith spoke up with the altracity of fear. But I'll take the money under protest, he added. The dog's mint. I ain't going to be robbed. Man's got his rights. Correct, Scott answered, passing the money over to him. A man's got his rights. But you're not a man. You're a beast. Wait till I get back to Dawson, Beauty Smith threatened. I'll have the law on you. If you open your mouth when you get back to Dawson, I'll have you run out of town. You understand? Beauty Smith replied with a grunt. Understand? The other thundered with an abrupt fierceness. Yes, Beauty Smith grunted, shrank away. Yes, what? Yes, sir, Beauty Smith snarled. Look out, he'll bite, someone shouted, and a guffaw of laughter went up. Scott turned his back on him and returned to help the dog musher who was working over White Fang. Some of the men were already departing. Others stood in groups, looking on, talking. Tim Keenan joined one of the groups, 
Who's that mug, he asked. Weedon Scott, someone answered. And who in hell is Weedon Scott, the faro dealer demanded. Ah, one of them crackerjack mining experts. Easily in with all the big bugs. You want to keep out of trouble, you'll steer clear of him. That's my talk. He's all hunky with the officials. The gold commissioner's a special pal of his. <laughs> I thought he must be somebody, was the faro dealer's comment. That's why I kept my hands off of him at the start. Chapter 5 The Indomitable From the Adventures of White Fang It's hopeless, Weedon Scott confessed. He sat on the step of the cabin, stared at the dog musher, who responded with a shrug that was equally hopeless. Together they looked at White Fang at the end of his stretched train, bristling, snarling, ferocious, straining to get at the sled dogs. Having received sundry lessons from Matt, said lessons being imparted by means of a club, the sled dogs had learned to leave White Fang alone. And even then, they were lying at a distance, apparently oblivious to his existence. It's a wolf. There's no taming it, Wheaton Scott announced. Uh, I don't know about that. Matt objected. Might be a lot of dog in him, for all you can tell, but there's one thing I know, sure, and that there's no getting away from. The dog musher paused and nodded his head confidently at Moosehide Mountain. Well, don't be a miser with what you know, Scott said sharply after waiting a suitable length of time. Spit it out! What is it? The dog musher indicated White Fang with a backward thrust of his thumb. Wolf or dog, it's all the same. He's been tamed ready. No. I tell you yes and broke the harness. Look close there. See them marks across his chest? You're right, Matt. He was a sled dog before Beauty Smith got a hold of him. Not much reason behind his being a sled dog again. What do you think? Scott queried eagerly. eagerly. Then the hope died down as he added, shaking his head. We've had him two weeks now, and if anything, he's wilder than ever at the present moment. Hey, give him a chance, Matt counseled. Turn him loose for a spell. The other looked at him incredulously. Yes, Matt went on. I know you tried to, but it didn't take a club. Well, you try it then. The dog musher secured a club, went over to the chained animal. White Fang watched the club after the manner of a caged lion watching the whip of its trainer. See him keep an eye on that club, Matt said. That's a good sign. He's no fool. Don't dast tackle me so long as I got the club handy. You're not a clean crazy, that's for sure. As the man's hand approached his neck, White Fang bristled snarled, crouched down. But while he eyed the approaching hand, at the same time he contrived to keep track of the club in the other hand, suspended threateningly above him. Matt unsnapped the chain from the collar and stepped 
back. White Fang could scarcely realize he was free. Many months had gone by since he passed into the possession of Beauty Smith, and in all that period he had never known a moment of freedom, except the time he'd been let loose to fight with other dogs, and immediately after such fights he'd always been imprisoned again. He didn't know what to make of it. Perhaps some new delivery of the gods was about to be perpetrated upon him. He, he walked slowly, cautiously, prepared to be assailed at any moment. He didn't know what to do. It was also unprecedented. He took the precaution to sheer off from the two watching gods, walked carefully to the corner of the cabin. Nothing happened. He was plainly perplexed came back again, paused a dozen feet away, and regarding the two men intently. Won't he run away? his new owner asked. Matt shrugged his shoulders. Gotta take a gamble. Only way to find out. Poor devil, Scott murmured pityingly. What he needs is some show of human kindness, he added, turning, going into the cabin. He came out with a piece of meat, which he tossed to White Fang, and sprang away from it, from a distance, studied it suspiciously. Hi-yo, Major, Matt shouted warningly, but too late. Major had made a spring for the meat, and at that instant his jaws closed around it. White Fang struck him. He was overthrown. Matt rushed in, but quicker than he was White Fang. Major staggered to his feet, but the blood spouting from his throat reddened the snow in a widening path. It's too bad, but served him right, Scott said hastily. Matt's foot already started on its way to kick White Fang. There was a leap, a flash of teeth, a sharp exclamation. White Fang, snarling fiercely, scrambled backwards for a few yards, while Matt stooped and investigated his leg. He got me all right, he announced, pointing to the torn trousers and undercloths and the growing stain of red. I told you it was hopeless, Matt, Scott said in a discouraging voice. I've thought about it off and on while not wanting to think of it. We've come to it now. It's the only thing to do. As he talked... With reluctant movements, he drew his revolver, threw open the cylinder, and assured himself of its contents. Now look here, Mr. Scott, Matt objected. That dog's been through hell. You can't expect him to come around a white and shiny angel. Give him time. Look at Major, the other rejoined. The dog musher surveyed the stricken dog. He sunk down in the snow in the circle of his blood and was plainly in the last gasp. Served him right. You said so yourself, Mr. Scott. He tried to take White Fang's meat. He's dead-o. That was to be expected. I'd give two whoops in hell for a dog that wouldn't fight for his own meat. But look at yourself, Matt. It's all about the dogs, but we've got to draw the line somewhere. Serve me right, Matt argued stubbornly. What I'd done to go kick him for. You said yourself he'd done right. 
and I had no right to kick him. It would be a mercy to kill him, Scott insisted. He's untamable. Now you look here, Mr. Scott. Give the poor devil a fighting chance. He ain't had no chance yet. He just come through hell. It's the first time he's been loose. Give him a fair chance, and if he don't deliver the goods, I kill him myself. There. God knows I don't want to kill him or have him killed, Scott answered, putting away the revolver. We'll let him run loose, see what kindness can do for him. And here's a try at it. He walked over to White Fang and began talking to him gently and smoothly. Better have a club handy, Matt warned. Scott shook his head and went on trying to win White Fang's confidence. White Fang was suspicious. Something was impending. He'd killed this god's dog, bitten his companion good, and what else was to be expected than some terrible punishment? But in the face of it, he was indomitable. He bristled showed his teeth, his eyes vigilant, his whole body wary, prepared for anything. The god had no club, so he suffered him to approach quite near. The god's hand had come out and was descending upon his head. White Fang shrank together and grew tense as he crouched under it. Here was danger, some, some treachery or something. He knew the hands of the gods, their proven mastery, their cunning to hurt. Besides, there was his old antipathy being touched. He snarled more menacingly, crouched still lower, and still the hand descended. He didn't want to bite the hand, but he endured the peril of it until his instincts surged up into him mastering him with its insatiable yearning for life. Whedon Scott had believed he was quick enough to avoid any snap or slash, but he'd yet to learn the remarkable quickness of White Fang, who struck with the certainty and swiftness of a coiled snake. Scott cried out in surprise, catching his own torn hand and holding it tightly with his other hand. Matt uttered a great oath and sprang to his side. White Fang crouched down, backed away, bristling, showing his fangs, his eyes malignant with menace. Now he could expect a beating as fearful as any he'd received from Beauty Smith. Here, what are you doing? Scott cried suddenly. Matt had dashed out into the cabin, come out with a rifle. Nothing, he said slowly with a careless calmness that was assumed. Only going to keep that promise I made. I reckon it's up to me to kill him as I said I'd do. No, you don't. Yes, I do. Watch me. And as Matt pleaded for White Fang when he'd been bitten, it was now Wheaton Smith's turn to bleed, plead. You said you'd give him a chance. Well, give it to him. We only just started. We can't quit at the beginning. Serve me right this time. And, and look at him. 
White Fang near the corner of the cabin, forty-five feet away, was snarling with blood-curdling viciousness. Not at Scott, but at the dog musher. Well, I'll be everlastingly gog-swashed, was the dog musher's expression of astonishment. Look at the intelligence of him, Scott went on hastily. He knows the meaning of firearms as well as you do. He's got intelligence. We've got to give that intelligence a chance. Now put up the gun. All right. I'm willing, Matt agreed, leaning the rifle against the woodpile. But will you look at that, he exclaimed the next moment. White Fang had quieted down, ceased snarling. This is worth investigating. Watch. Now Matt reached for the rifle, and at that same moment, White Fang snarled. He stepped away from the uh, rifle, and White Fang's lifted lips descended, covering his teeth. Now, just for fun, Matt took the rifle and began slowly to raise it to his shoulder. White Fang's snarling began with the movement and increased as the movement approached its culmination. But the moment before the rifle came to a level on him, he leaped sideways behind the corner of the cabin. Matt stood staring along the sights at the empty space of snow which had been occupied by White Fang. The dog musher put the rifle down solemnly, then turned to look at his employer. I agree with you, Mr. Scott. That dog is too intelligent to kill. Wow. <laughs> and uh, that's going to do it. Yeah, we stopped at uh, chapter six. The next chapter is called the Love Master. This is getting even more interesting. <laughs> wow. Cool beans. All right. Hey, that's going to do it. We did a special Saturday edition of Just Reading White Fang, which I thought would be fun. We'll move ahead in this book. It's a long book, by the way. We've still got quite a bit more to go. And then coming up, we will be doing uh, 1984 from George Orwell. Cool. All right. Uh, I'll see you on Monday night with our regular show. We'll be back to talking about all the issues of the day and all the crap going on in the news. And trust me, from what I've seen this weekend, there's going to be a lot to talk about. <laughs> all right, I will see you again on Monday night. Until then, have yourselves a great rest of the weekend. This has been a special Saturday edition of the Jay Sheldon Show. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>